They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. And Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Here we are again. Once more onto the breach. Nathan, I saw something kind of interesting while I was browsing the interwebs. Some guy talking about he had been challenged to, like, name a hundred movies. And he he just couldn't do it because he... It's one of those things where, like, you know you've seen a hundred movies, but you just, like, can't think of them all. And I was thinking... I don't think it would be that hard if you, like, kept yourself, if you restricted yourself to, like, series. Like, if you know all of the Marvel Mm. movies, that's 27 right there. And then you just name, like, Scream. All you have to do is Scream 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Six (laughs) movies. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, trilogies, franchises, stuff like that. I think you could could get pretty high if if you know enough of them. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking, too, is I was like, well, if I I know, I'd say like 75 percent of the movies that have won Best Picture at the Oscars, like I have them in my mind because I've seen them. Uh, Just a little subtle flex there. But like all I have to do is name those and whatever I can't remember. Yeah, just name all the Marvel movies and then you're golden. I'd be interested to see how many movies I could name before I would just run out. I feel like it would be a lot. I've seen roughly 1,500 movies. I don't know if I could name that many, but I, I feel like I could get close to like 500 before I'd be starting to lose track or something. Well, yeah. I mean, also name like director filmographies. Like I could name all the... Nolan movies, um, you can name a bunch of Hitchcock, Kubrick, uh, the Coen brothers. Yeah, I think, I think if you structured it right, if you made it so that like, you just had chunks of series and filmographies and stuff like that, I think you could get pretty high, assuming that you have actually seen a lot of movies. Yeah, obviously, if you've only seen, like, 30 movies, you're going to have issues regardless. What an interesting thought experiment, Elliot. What a, what a good thing for us to banter about. Yeah, let's, uh, everyone listening, get, name how many, or get, let us know how many movies you think you can name in the comments. Let's drive engagement a little bit here. Oh, funny. You know that on Spotify, our... We have a like four point nine out of five star rating. Yeah, I don't know why it's not five because I can't imagine who. I feel like everyone who listens to us 
knows is like friends with us or something. So I think there's just some random person who stumbled across it and was like, this sucks. They're trash. Maybe, maybe they hate Brazilians. That's always a strong possibility. There's a lot of anti-Brazilian sort of hate floating around in the world. Prejudice. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of prejudice. Speaking of prejudice, (laughs) this movie has some, uh, yeah, we mentioned last week that we were going to be going to Martin Scorsese's newest movie, Killers of the Flower Moon. We have since gone to that movie, and I thought we should do an episode. We were probably going to do an episode inevitably on this one, because it's most likely going to get nominated for Best Picture, and it's going to... Right now, the odds are it's going to be Oppenheimer versus this for what wins. There could be a dark horse coming in, but it looks like it's going to be these two facing off, which is, I think is a super exciting face. I mean, Scorsese, Nolan, this is some great directors. Anyway, I saw the movie. Elliot saw the movie. I thought it was really interesting what it chose to do with the book and with the story that the book told and the story that, you know, exists in history. And so I really wanted to talk about it as soon as possible. So we're doing Killers of the Flower Moon today, right now. Yeah, so let's let's jump into it. Elliot, what were your expectations going into this movie? And what give us some of your expectations and then your first impressions on the film. Uh, I would say I had pretty high expectations for this. It sounded like a really interesting story. Um, we've talked about Marty a few times on this podcast before. I don't think that either of us would rank him as like in our top five favorite direct. Well, obviously we wouldn't because we did that whole episode and he wasn't there. But <laughs> I don't think either of us like are huge Martin Scorsese fans. But I still I think that he's a great director. I think that he's he's certainly earned his reputation as one of the greats and the trailers. I mean, some of them were a little iffy, but a lot of them made it seem really interesting. Just seemed like a dramatic, intense kind of historically based story. And I like that kind of thing. So yeah, high expectations, maybe too high expectations because Mm. I would say that the movie definitely was not what I was expecting. It was much, it was a much slower burn than I was expecting, even accounting for the three and a half hour runtime. It was a much more narrowly focused story than I was expecting. It addresses, it, it addresses one family well, technically two families, in this period of time, Osage Reign of Terror, rather than being about the whole thing. And it's also... It's... So the it, its focus was narrower than I was expecting, and the object of its focus was different than what I was expecting, because it is very much about William Hale, Robert De Niro's character, and Ernest Burkhart, uh, Leo D's character. <laughs> I thought that it was going to be more about Molly, but she 
did not do a whole lot in this film, which I think, and we'll get into this later, I think is absolutely to its detriment. So, yeah, I would say that I'm I'm kind of mixed on this movie. There's a lot that I like about it. The technical elements are immaculate. Like, I don't think Martin Scorsese is capable of making a movie that's, like, end-to-end <laughs> bad. Even Taxi Driver, which I really dislike, I wouldn't say is... is a hundred percent bad but i think that this movie took the story in the wrong direction and i know that there's a whole conversation about like rating movies based on the story that they chose not to tell that's a bit of a tricky proposition but i think that the way this movie chose to tell its story and the way it framed it all blunted a lot of impacts that should have been a lot more potent and stretched out a story that could have been and should have been more focused and more simultaneously more focused in its like scripting but broad in its subject broad in its overview of the uh, characters and the time and the events that it's looking at. So that probably doesn't make any sense, but again, I just woke up and yeah. Um, well, Elliot, you got a rising grind. Otherwise the, you know, the grind is going to rise to you or something. I don't, what? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> let's just, let's just start this with, pretty much my, what sounds like we share the same sort of criticism, although mine is coming from a slightly different place. So let's just start it with, right, I read the book. The book is very much about Tom White, who appears in the movie, but really only at the end. And he's only in like a few scenes and he's really just a facilitator of the final sort of comeuppance for Ernest and William, but he doesn't really do much outside of being a tool of the FBI. And the book was much more concerned with this. A lot of the book is taken up by the trial, which only gets like the last, what, 20 minutes or so of the movie. And the book is very much about, and this is one of the things that I found most interesting about the book, is about the American myth crashing into the truth of American history. That the reason why, and this isn't covered at all in the movie, but the trial was one of the biggest news stories of the year. It attracted a huge number of people. It was a giant media circus. And the reason was because as this trial was happening, the Western film or the Western movie genre was like exploding, was starting to become the genre. What are you shaking your head at, Elliot? You pr- continuing to pronounce genre, genre. Genre. It's a genre. <laughs> anyway. And so all of this trial, all of this story took on this sort of larger than life feel for people that they were like, wow, this is crazy. It's just like the movies, right? There's cowboys and Indians. It's so exciting. And so they were attracted to this thing. And what was lost in all of this media circus was, right, the story. And so the book was very much about this sort of juxtaposition. And the movie doesn't really have 
any of that. It kind of has a bit at the very end in the the kind of the final scene where it does like um, a radio show version of the story, sort of, which is interesting, I guess, but it's the first time it shows up. So it's kind of a weird thing to just throw in at the end. And I know that this movie went through a very troubled screenwriting process. As Martin Scorsese was trying to find an avenue, he really wanted to make the movie, but he was trying really hard to find an avenue that he found compelling and a story that he felt he could tell honestly in the story, basically. And he finally found it by reframing the story as, like you said, mostly about Ernest and William Hale more than anything else, more than. Tom White, in an interview, he said he couldn't do the movie about Tom White because Tom White was just too good of a human being. He didn't drink. He wasn't racist. He was just a fantastic, fantastic person. And Martin Scorsese couldn't figure out how to tell a compelling story about a fantastic person. That seems like a bit of a, I don't know, he made a movie about Jesus. Surely he can do one about Tom White. (laughs) But I think, and let's talk about this, right? How much should we judge the movie for not telling the story that we feel the story, we feel the movie should have told, right? I went into the movie hoping it was going to be like a neo-Western. Instead, it was much more of like a psychological drama, almost like more focused on the relationship between Molly and Ernest, as evidenced by the fact that, right, the climax is him confessing that he's done all these scummy things to her family, and then the movie ends, right? Or the story ends because it doesn't show the trial. It doesn't show what happened to the people. Instead, it gives it through this radio thing. And so I don't know, just like you, I'm torn on how harsh I should be on a movie for not doing what I wanted the movie to do. Well, yeah. And so I think that it's probably the best route to take would be to critique the story that the movie did tell and sort of like try to get at why its choices were were not the best choices and how that that kind of leads people to imagine what could have been so i think that this movie this movie's focus being on William Hale and Ernest Burkhardt, I think that that was the wrong choice to make because it takes a lot of the, I don't know, the the mystery and the allure out of the story to know right off the bat who is doing the killings and why, especially since their motives are pretty blasé like they just want money okay that's 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 lame but like the thing is the movie doesn't really go anywhere with that it doesn't like in its framing and in its script and in its like subtext it never really wants the audience to consider how how doubly awful it makes all of this suffering and death that it's just about it's just about money 
there was room, I think, for a larger critique of even like the American, the American dream, like the American dream revolves around getting rich. And so you could, I think that their motives could have been a staging ground for something a lot more interesting and a lot more potent, but the movie isn't really interested in that. It seems like it's only interested in telling this story rather than relating this story to anything, any larger sort of theme, even like, even a a larger theme of like the suffering of Native Americans, because like, yeah, they're absolutely suffering in this movie, but the movie doesn't really focus on that a whole lot. Its focus is more on Ernest and William doing their thing, so we don't get a lot of time knowing how the Osage feel about this, how they're, how they're reacting to it. Like we, there's sort of, they mention a few times that nobody's investigating the murders, that it takes, it's taking time and resources that it probably shouldn't in order to get someone to pay attention. But that is such a, that is so firmly in the background that it doesn't really play into the movie that much like they have a few mentions of it's hard to get people to um focus on what's happening there uh but we never it's definitely showing and not telling like we never see the police saying i don't care this isn't this isn't this is clearly an accident or something something like that we don't see molly's uh negotiations with the government in trying to get the FBI to send someone down. We just know that she's there. And then in the next few scenes, the FBI arrives, which makes it almost seem like they were quite amenable to this. And I think that that was, that was the wrong decision because it makes the story just, it just loses so much impact and so much, so much emotion that it could have otherwise had. This is, this is interesting now because I, would disagree with a lot of the stuff that uh, that you said there. I think especially I find Ernest and William, and I, I don't think the movie is necessarily only focused on them. It feels to me like the movie is more focused on maybe Molly and Ernest. And just because Molly is not there for a lot of it, it was forefront in my mind that it was like, oh, this is scummy of him to keep doing these awful things to someone who he seems to care about or he seems to, at least in some way, love. But I felt like Ernest and William were such a fascinating duo. I loved, this might be my favorite Robert De Niro performance I've ever seen. I don't really like Robert De Niro. I'm kind of traumatized every time I see him because of Once Upon a Time in America, that every time he shows up, I'm like, ah, whoa, oh, oh, thank goodness. It's not Once Upon a Time in America. It's a different movie. But I thought he was so good as this per, as this just slimy dirtbag who is constantly manipulate. There were so many scenes late in the movie where it's obvious that Ernest is starting to have some like doubts about what he's doing. He's starting to have some cognitive dissonance in like, I love Molly, but I'm like, right, giving her poison. And so he's starting very, very slowly to have this 
kind of wrestling with what he wants to do. And it was so amazing. The screenplay was just fantastic of just all of these little ways that William manipulated him to think what he was doing was right. And all of these things that William says that he right clearly doesn't believe, he clearly doesn't actually care about the Osage as much as he says he does. And I thought it was also fascinating early in the movie uh, the women are kind of talking when Ernest is kind of trying to woo Molly a bit, a little bit, and Molly's talking to her sisters about it. And one of them says like, oh, he can't be marrying you for money because he already has money, which I felt just drove home how incredibly unlogical, not unlogical. What's the word for not logical? Dislogical? illogical wow that's embarrassing <laughs> just how illogical greed and evil is right that william had all the money he could ever possibly need and he was constantly coming up with all of these incredibly destructive and awful ways to make more right like he has more than enough money and he still murders his assistant guy in order to get the life insurance money. He has all the money he needs and he burns his own property in order to get insurance money. Like it, it just felt like the movie was constantly driving home how evil and banal these things were given how often they're plotting right in the barber shop, in the whatever, the pool club in like in broad daylight, Ernest is going to the guy who he wants to find AC Kirby and blow up the other people's house. In broad daylight on a busy street, he's yelling at the guy to find a person to kill other people. And it just, it felt like the entire movie kept driving home how illogical and stupid the base of all of this was. That it was based on greed that could never possibly be satisfied. Right. That no amount of money was ever going to be enough that and that kind of applies more to, I think, Hale than Ernest. Whereas I thought Ernest was just a fascinating look of how if we never stop to, like, have any values, the world is going to determine our values for us. And the world is going to give us really crummy values. Like, I love that first scene when he comes home to talk to his uncle and just, it feels like there's nothing going on behind, like under the hood that everything his uncle asked, he's like, Oh, do you love money? Oh yeah. I love money. I, I love that money. I love women. Like it just feels like he's reciting back everything he expects to be told. And that feels the same way through the rest of the movie that he's constantly doing what he thinks other people want him to. And it's not resulting in any like positive it's just awful, right? Because he's letting himself be manipulated because he's never stopping to say, no, I want to do this thing. Or he doesn't have any beliefs or values that's guiding what he's doing. He's just blindly driven by the people around him. And so I thought, and this is why I'm really sort of torn on the movie, is I think the story we get is very compelling and very interesting. And there's a lot of meat to dive into. I just don't think it's the most interesting or the most compelling version of this story. And so it's hard because I feel like I'm going to, and I am going to end up docking this movie points for stuff it didn't do 
because I think what it did do is good, but what it could have done was better, if that makes any sort of sense. Huh. I mean, yeah, I I don't really get that from this movie. I I didn't... I never really got a sense of a contrast between Hale's material status and his desire for more material status. Like, I never got the sense that he was really rich or that the movie wanted me to know that he was really rich and that he was just doing this for more and more and more because he's... he's he is a, a subject of focus, but he's kind of a f- subject of focus in the context of his relationship with Ernest. The movie's main character is definitely Ernest. And so, yeah, I just never really got that. And maybe maybe I just demand to be spoon-fed or something. Like, maybe I, <laughs> the movie's too subtle for me. But I just never really got that sense. And I never really got the sense from Ernest that he was... I mean, I got the sense that he was upset but not really not really conflicted if that makes any sense like he wasn't grappling with what he was doing he just sort of acknowledged on a base emotional level that what he was doing was making his wife upset and that made him upset i didn't get really much conflict and maybe that's because he is just very simple and he doesn't have the capacity to grapple with concepts like that. But in that case, again, I think that that just, that's just, that just makes him a poor subject for this story. Sure. And I think if there's any kind of widespread critique I would have on almost every Martin Scorsese movie I've ever seen is a lot of the times I do think he sets the themes and ideas that he's trying to represent way in the gosh dang background. I think we mentioned it in our Goodfellas review that I'm sure Martin Scorsese doesn't endorse the actions of the characters in Goodfellas, but I think it would be really hard for you to say where in that movie he is explicitly saying this guy is a dirtbag. And I feel kind of the same way about Wolf of Wall Street, that I does not feel... And this movie, I think, is kind of the same thing. Maybe I was just more willing than in his previous movies to do some work and, right, look for the stuff, which maybe it's me, maybe it's the movie. That's always sort of the debate. So I I could definitely see, I don't think everyone's going to see, right, everything that I saw in the movie. But I don't know. That's what, I feel like it's a very, the movie still told a very compelling story with the two characters that it sort of chose to highlight. And I was very interested. I was engaged, but yeah, Uh, I could certainly see why other people would, right, not see it. Again, I don't think he's calling attention to it. I don't think he's putting in a lot of effort to make sure every human being in the theater is aware of the things that he's trying to do. I think he is trying to do them, but yeah, I don't think everyone's going to see it. And if you don't see it, you can't give the movie points for what you don't see. Yeah, um, whatever. So I do have a question because you're, you've read this book, so you know a lot more about this because I'm curious about 
how much we we learned about Molly in the book. Like, was she bedridden for most of the story as she was in the movie? Yeah, she is. And she, like, this is the avenue that the book takes to tell the story of the Osage Reign of Terror, which was the t- name for that period of time where white people were killing a lot of Osage in order to get their money. And Molly is like, the book doesn't spend a lot of time, but a lot of it's kind of like you can imagine, right? All of her sisters and her mom are murdered, right? That would clearly upset a person. And she was bedridden for much of the book because she's being poisoned actively by her husband. The movie doesn't do a lot with kind of what happens afterward. And as soon as Tom White comes in, the book is very much focused. Uh, The book is also very focused on the FBI because just a brief history lesson, J. Edgar Hoover kind of used this case to shoot the FBI into what it is today or what it was for a very long time. Uh, At the time of this movie, you might have noticed when Tom White shows up, he says he's with the Bureau of Investigation, not the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He's always running with a posse because he wasn't allowed to carry a gun. All he could carry was a badge. So he needed other people to have guns in case there was a gunfight. So the book is very concerned with this sort of the FBI side of the story, which the movie obviously is not concerned with at all. But I think in terms of Molly in this movie, I think it is unfortunate that she wasn't given a lot to do. Like we said, she's bedridden for a huge, she's bedridden and like hallucinating. Like she's clearly in a bad place mentally where she can't really think through things all the way. And I think it's unfortunate, but also in order to have her be in the movie more, they would have had to fundamentally change like things that happened in order for her to be more active. She would have had to be more active in history and she wasn't able to be because she was again being poisoned by her husband. So I think it's unfortunate because I think Lily Gladstone is doing a fantastic job and definitely holding her own against right? Two of the most acclaimed actors of all time, maybe. But she's just not really given much to do. And just Molly as a person was very, and they mentioned this in the book, she's very reserved. It's difficult to see if any of this is having much of an emotional effect. I think it clearly is. But just as a person, she wasn't the most emotional sort of person. So especially like in that last scene, when Ernest is on the stand confessing to the things that he did and she's in the audience she's clearly upset and it's a fantastic performance she's upset but like it's coming through in the subtleties not in like she's bawling her eyes out in the thing so i don't know i feel bad that we've we're kind of bogged down in talking about other stuff in the movie but it feels like the movie, it's hard to grapple with what the movie's telling because there's all this other stuff that the movie could have done, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, if that's the case, then yeah, I would say it would probably be better to stick as close as you can to the facts. But still, even in that framework, I think that 
they gloss over her trip to DC. They have like just one scene of it. I think that what? Well, she didn't make a trip. Most likely she was not on that trip to DC. There was a trip to DC, but there's no historical. And I was just reading an interview with the author of the book where he was asked about stuff in the movie that's not real. And he's like, she might've gone on the trip, but there's no evidence of it. And there's definitely no evidence that she ever talked to Calvin Coolidge. Okay. So that's, it's interesting that you've highlighted, right. The one scene that's not real. (laughs) Well, see then again, I think that this movie should have been more about the community, about the Osage community. Cause then in that context, you would have more stuff with them in DC and just in general, more of a sense of the impact this is having on them. Because I thought that when they had their little council meeting and they say that like, or not when they have the meeting, when they're talking to Tom White and they say that there's like 25 people dead, I was like, wait, what? When did that happen? Because that's not all Ernest and William. That's... Ernest and William are representative of a larger phenomenon of white people killing the Osage that they've sort of been assigned as guardians, that like the stewards of their their money. But we do not get really like we do not really get that from the movie very much. I mean, they have the opening where they run through some murders and mention that there's no investigation again telling and not showing and then we have this one mention that there are dozens of people dead and i'm like what why are we not talking about that why is that not more of a focus because when you and it's not about like this me wanting the movie to tell a different story it's about the story that the movie is trying to tell is bigger than what it's actually communicating and i think that the loss of scope and scale there translates to a loss of emotional impact and investment. Not that like I need, I, I, I'm so emotionally jaded. I can't feel anything if fewer than like a dozen people are dying, but just because the problem is so much bigger than the movie is kind of letting on. Yeah, well, and I was very interested by, in the book, there's a third part of the book that literally follows the author as he's doing research for the other parts of the book, basically not stumbling onto, but coming to the realization that way more people were killed than was originally thought. When he started research on the book, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was something like 40-some deaths in total were attributed to this reign of terror. And as he did more research, he was just constantly finding death records where it was stuff like they were killed by wasting disease, which, as we see in the movie, was most likely poison provided by doctors. That he was like, the scope of this was way bigger. I want to say he ends up coming to a number of like 100 to 150 people were like, Right. Three times as many people were most likely killed. And I thought it was interesting that the movie doesn't even end with like a postscript saying that or a postscript 
of any kind, right? There's no, it has the kind of like final radio show thing where it talks about what happens to Ernest, William, and Molly. But then after the movie ends, there's no like, also by the way, which I thought was weird because, and I think you put it very well, that it feels like the focus of the movie is off, that the movie is talking about something that's larger than what it's telling and you're like, wait, that's really like, that's a big deal. It's like if they made a movie about like if the moon landing was fake or like, I'm trying to think of a good example. I, <laughs> like, I don't know if they made a movie about Lee Harvey Oswald that was about like his marital troubles before the shooting. You're like, I don't really care about that. This guy shot JFK that it feels like the focus of the movie is in the wrong place. And so I think that's kind of the crux of maybe both of our issues. Although it seems like it's maybe more of an issue for you because you also just don't like what the movie is doing, period. I think the movie is doing something really interesting and really cool. And it seems like you don't really see much of interest in the movie. So you're like, dang, this other story sounds a lot better than what you're doing right now. I just think it sounds a bit better. Well, yeah. Let's, uh, I think that we've said our piece on the movie story, or I've said my piece on the movie story and the direction that it takes. So let's, let's talk about some other things. Let's talk about performances. Uh, you've already singled out Robert De Niro, De Niro and Lily Gladstone for praise. I agree. I think that, uh, De Niro was probably the standout for me, and his character was a really good, like, sleazy, unscrupulous con man kind of character. Mm. Um, I also, I mean, Leo is a great actor. I thought that Lily, Lily Gladstone, Gladstone, Gladstone did a great job. Um, yeah, she wasn't given a whole lot to do. Like, she spent most of the movie being sick in bed, which fine that's what you got to do and she she performed it well i mean it it was a it was a miserable sight um and like i've never been poisoned but i've been pretty sick in my time so i was definitely feeling it when she's just like sitting in bed hunched over a chamber pot or something yeah uh, she but like it's not just that she didn't that the character didn't have a lot to do it's that the character she didn't have a lot to react to. Didn't really have a range of experiences to react to outside of tragedy. Like the only thing, about the only thing that the movie asked her to do was be sad uh, about various deaths and stuff. Which, again, like that's what you got to do. Fine. And she does a great job. I'm not saying that it's easy to uh, act sad. I certainly can't do it. I'm just saying that it's unfortunate, you know... I just said, you know, uh, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible, folks. That's the real tragedy. But yeah, I think that, okay, obviously it's not the real tragedy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that she doesn't have, she doesn't really get to display a more diverse range of emotions. But that's fine. And uh, yeah, yeah. Jesse Plemons, love him, does a great job here. Also, uh, doesn't have a lot to do, doesn't have a lot to work with, but that's fine. And yeah, I thought everyone did a did a really good job. No one really 
to be honest, no one really blew me away. No one really like made me think, wow, that's 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 truly a performance of a lifetime. But yeah, really good. All the same. Yeah, like I said, I really liked a lot of the performances. I agree some of them don't have a lot to do. I think you already mentioned it earlier in your thing, the technical elements. I thought this movie looked fantastic. It was also funny to me to just see how many of the classic kind of Scorsese-isms the movie had. He does have a classic Scorsese kind of tracking shot where they go through the house Early in the movie, he's got that classic Scorsese narration, which, like you said, uh, is very annoying. I'm glad there wasn't a ton of it. He had a cameo himself, in case you didn't recognize him, as the last person to appear in the film with a speaking line. That was the old boy, Marty. But yeah, the, the music, I've seen a lot of people praising the music. I think the music is pretty good. I don't think it's something I would listen to casually, but I think in terms of it sounds really weird and just the way it created quite a bit of just unease just because it sounds kind of funky. It doesn't sound like what you're expecting the soundtrack to sound like. It's very good in that sense. It's not something that I would listen to, but it's something that's very effective for the movie that it's being used in. Honestly, I, I, it sounds like I enjoyed this movie more than you. I thought it was really well paced. I do not like The Irishman, which was his last incredibly lengthy movie that he put out. I thought this one kind of flew by. There was only really two points where I was like, oh man, this is kind of spinning its wheels. It felt like in the middle, right? Not the middle, but the section before they finally got someone to blow up the house it felt like they kept mentioning it and then not being very like, it felt like when you're trying to get people to work on a group project and you have to just keep reminding them like, Hey, we're trying to do this thing. Hurry up. Stop, you know, faffing about. It felt kind of like that, that there was just a lot of like them talking about it. And then multiple scenes would go by and they're talking about it again. I'm like, how hard is it to find someone? Maybe it was hard to find people in the 1920s. I don't know. I wasn't alive. But that was pretty much the only point in the movie. And then maybe near the tail end, when it got to the trial, that I was like, man, how much longer is this movie going to be? And then it ends kind of abruptly, or it ended, it felt abrupt to me because I was expecting the story to continue after the trial, and it did not. But I thought it was really well-paced. I also went with my girlfriend, and she is not really a huge movie person, and... She was not, I asked her yesterday to verify because maybe she was bored and didn't tell me to be nice, but she was not bored at any point. So I think the movie is actually really well paced and a fairly engaging watch through its entire three and a half hour runtime, which is an impressive feat in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I think that the pacing was, it was a lot better. It it could have been a lot worse for a three and a half hour movie. Uh, those types of movies can go really really wrong there were never points where i was like bored or wondering how long it was going to go on i would say that i don't it felt like a three and a half hour movie it didn't really it did I, and i didn't dislike that the way i do with some other really long movies where you're like holy cow this is long um i was aware that it was a long movie so what i'm saying is it didn't really fly by for me like 
Oppenheimer is a long movie, but I was always like 100% in on that movie. So that movie, I didn't feel the length at all. I felt the length here. It wasn't a huge problem, but I was more aware of it because I wasn't as engaged in the story. Uh, technical elements, yes. Martin Scorsese is a great director. He works with a fantastic cinematographer, Rodrigo something. I can't quite remember his name, um, but it's someone who he's worked with. Yeah. All right, well, yeah. you look that up, and I'll keep on talking. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, I think the lighting and the color palette were both uh, fairly muted, a bit washed out, but I think that that made sense. That matched the tone that the movie was going for. A lot of the shots, it had really good shot composition, uh, some, like, pulled-back shots to get you in on a lot of, to communicate a lot of information. So I'm thinking specifically of the shots of, like, the uh, the race in the streets early on in the movie or the shot of the policeman at the bank or the shot that was in the first trailer of Ernest coming into some room with all of his uncle's friends and his uncle's lawyer and everyone stops talking and looks up at him. I think that's a great shot. Uh, also, speaking of which, Brendan Fraser is in this movie for like three minutes and he has a total of, what, four lines? <laughs> It's uh, it's not yeah. a, it's not exactly like a triumphant installment in the Renaissance as like the whale was or supposedly was. I haven't seen it. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I also agree about the music. It's not something I would listen to casually, but it complemented the movie that it was in. Good stuff all around. I think that the technical technical elements actively enhanced my enjoyment of this film. So good, very good. Yeah, the cinematographer is Rodrigo Prito. There you go. And I'm almost 100% certain he did the cinematography on Silence, and we've already done an episode about how much I love that movie, and you do as well. Yeah, that's pretty... I feel like I've said enough. We kind of camped down on, again, like the themes or the story of the movie, but it's it's always weird when right something's an adaptation, and I feel like this is the first time we've done a review of a movie of a book that one of us have, has read that like read before the movie. I can't think of another movie that we've reviewed like that. So it felt like I was coming in with a lot of uh, expectations. I was a little what all quiet on the Western front. Oh yes, but you you oh. I guess you read the book before you saw that version of All Quiet on the Western Front. Yes. Anywho. Anywho. Um, also, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, but that's another... You saw the movie before you read the book. Okay. I'm just going to give up. Which is... <laughs> well, because yeah, most Because Silence, I saw the movie and then I read the book. So, anywho... We'll see if that any of that conversation makes it to the final episode. All that to say, I'm very. I had a lot of expectations going into the movie, so I had to talk about the expectations. That was my experience with the film. I don't have anything else really to add, I guess. So I'm ready to go to ratings. If you are, let's do it to it. All right. Well, I'll go first. I'm, like I said, I'm very conflicted on this movie. I came in with a lot of expectations. I don't think all of them were necessarily met because the movie was different from how I expected it. The movie, the story that the movie chose to tell is not the story I would have necessarily wanted, but I think it is 
very good. I think it has a lot of interesting ideas about the nature of greed, the nature of evil, the nature of kind of the people who would perpetrate things that this movie shows. I think all the acting is amazing. The technical elements are really good. I think this is a very enjoyable movie for its length and it's, I guess, enjoyable for me despite the subject matter because it's an impressive feat. But I do really wish we could see a Killers of the Flower Moon that's more faithful to the book, more faithful to the ideas of the book. I don't know if we ever will. Probably not. But I think it'll be something that I'll always go, oh, man, what if? So I think that kind of docks it a bit. It feels like the focus of the movie is not necessarily where it should be. But despite all those things, I think it's a really good movie. I'm going to give it an 8-point four out of 10. It's like my third favorite Scorsese movie at this point. So it's really good. It's just, it's hard to shake what could have been, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a lot harder than I was expecting. It's definitely going to be a lot harder than mine. Um, I was disappointed all in all. I had higher expectations for this movie than what were met. I still think it is a decent movie. Uh, there's a lot to recommend it in terms of its technical elements, uh, its performances and stuff like that. I just think that the story that it chose to tell was too limiting and too too limiting in its scope and too limited in how it took advantage of the scope that it did have. I think there was a lot of stuff that the movie should have focused on that it didn't, uh, which blunted the emotional impact of it. So, yeah, all things considered, I'm going to give it a C plus. Yeah. See, I figure once you started talking about the actual story, I was like, oh, we're not on the same. We're not on the same page at all here. All right. Well, let's let's crack on with some recommendations. I would before I recommend anything, if you haven't seen this movie, I would recommend finding a block of time to go and see it. Like I said, the pacing is very good. I don't think it'll feel like a three and a half hour long movie. And it's certainly a movie that's worthy of you watching it, if only to learn about something in American history that you maybe didn't know about beforehand. So my first recommendation is this movie. My second recommendation, if you have seen this movie and you want something similar, is going to be Warren Beatty's Reds which is a 1980-something, early 80s movie about the author Jack Reed and his wife, who I am forgetting the name of, but it's mostly about his wife, or at least it enters into, who were communist authors in America in the 1910s to 1920s. Jack Reed wrote a very famous book covering the... Russian Revolution. They were both in Russia at the time of the revolution and covered it, wrote books about it, wrote articles about it that were very well received and very positively reviewed by critics. It is an epic in every sense of the word. It's three hours long. They go to like four different continents in the course of the movie, I want to say. And it's just really good if you like this movie for its telling of a story that you weren't aware of. This movie is another story that I was not aware of. It's very interesting. It's got a lot of ideas at play in Warren Beatty and his 
Warren Beatty's Jack Reed and his commitment to the ideas that he believes in and kind of how he grapples with those ideas in both the revolution and the aftermath of the revolution as the Soviet Union is kind of becoming what we talked about last week in The Death of Stalin. But it is a fantastic movie, very well made, incredibly uh, well acted from everyone. Diane Keaton plays the wife. She's fantastic. Fantastic. Jack Nicholson is in the movie briefly as this like weird poet who feels like Jack Nicholson playing himself in some ways. But it is a really, really good movie. I don't ever see it really talked about despite how critically acclaimed it was on release. I feel like now it's kind of slipped into the background because it hasn't had that much of a shelf life. But I was really, I thought it was really good. So I think it's another movie that a little slept on. You should check it out if you like this one. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie, so I cannot comment. But I can comment on Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, This is a movie that was also nominated for Best Picture. Uh, It's about the assassination of Fred Hampton by the FBI, by J. Edgar Hoover, not personally, but he ordered it, which is made possible by a mole that the FBI inserts in the form of Bill O'Neill. So this is also a movie, a historically based movie about a man who's very conflicted about his role in upcoming events. Um, It's got Lakeith Stanfield in the main role. Uh, Jesse Plemons is also in it, playing the FBI agent who is sort of uh, Bill's handler. Oh my gosh, I'm completely blanking on his name. Fred Hampton. Daniel Kaluuya. Daniel Kaluuya. Thank you. Gosh, that's embarrassing. Daniel Kaluuya plays Fred Hampton. Fantastic performance. Uh, really interesting movie. Very compelling. Very entertaining. Yeah, it's uh, it's the it's also like about it's much more about the community that's struggling than it is about uh like the fbi or anything like that um it's got a much more snappy pace it's shorter uh yeah it's fantastic movie very well done very well acted uh very tense at times and yeah i would say definitely give it a watch amazing i would second that that's a fantastic movie i was a huge fan of it when i saw it way back when it came out in 2019, 2020, something like that. I don't know. What I do know is that life is hard and full of disappointments. Yep. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening to this episode. Uh, There's nothing really exciting movie-wise coming out in the next couple weeks. So we'll be back to a regular episode on another movie of indeterminate quality. You'll be able to learn the quality by watching, listening to the episode. Thanks for listening to this one, though. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week on Magellan's at the Movies.